You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back. In my uh, first lecture in this series, I ended by talking about the 19th century background for what happens in 20th century ethics. And I was suggesting uh, very quickly, far too quickly, that at the end of the 19th century, we have a kind of crisis in moral philosophy. And it's a crisis that calls into question the two great foundational attempts to do moral philosophy in the 19th century. The one attempt founded in the work of Immanuel Kant and sort of having disciples all over Europe, including to a certain extent a number of British philosophers in uh, the British idealist tradition, that attempt was called into question by the hypercritical work of Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher and cultural critic at the end of the 19th century. Nietzsche heaped criticism on the Kantian notion that human beings are these centers of pure reason and that reason can speak through us and pronounce on ethical issues. Nietzsche opposed to that view of human beings as being sort of assertive, aggressive pockets of activity who were striving to overcome others. Nietzsche's famous phrase to sum up his account of what human nature is, is it's the will to power, the drive to overcome, to overcome physically, to overcome in term intellectually, to overcome and overwhelm sexually. Human nature is a bundle of powerful drives. If so, the Kantian project of founding the ethical on pure reason seems to be in deep trouble. As the 20th century wears on, this Nietzschean picture, I think, becomes more and more persuasive, and we will return to this later. The other great foundational enterprise, the enterprise of the 19th century utilitarians, was in crisis because of the failure of Sidgwick's great attempt to ground utilitarianism on a sort of rational basis. I mentioned that Sidgwick's book, The Methods of Ethics, was an attempt to sort through all the possible methods of ethics and to find the correct one and establish its rational authority. This in the face of these changes in the 19th century and these great attacks on the ethical again by Darwin, Freud, Marx, Durkheim, and so forth. Sidgwick's strategy was to reduce all the possible methods of ethics actually to two. And when he talks about the methods of ethics, he's talking about the way reason again might compel us to act or give us reasons for a sort of overwhelming and powerful and authoritative reasons to act. Sidgwick finally concludes that there are only two methods that must compete with one another. The method of self-interest and egoism, method of practical rationality where I'm always acting in my own interest, or this same principle universalized the method of altruism, which he says is coextensive with utilitarianism, that I'm always required to act in the best interest of everyone or to maximize happiness. Sidgwick's hope was that he could find an argument that would show that we're all rationally compelled 
to take into account the interests of everybody and we find a foundational theory that will support the kind of utilitarian ideal in the 19th century. His failure to do this, his failure which he suggests involves a contradiction at the very heart of human reason, actually drove Sidgwick almost mad. He spent his last years traveling around England interviewing psychics, hoping for empirical evidence of an afterlife. So the argument might be, it will ultimately be in our best interest to take into account the interests of everyone because otherwise we'll have to, as it were, pay in an afterlife. Sidgwick, who was completely without religious faith, or any religious belief in immortality, was hoping for a scientifically respectable account of immortality. And it's one of the ironies, of course, of that great scientific century that in order to find this kind of scientific proof, he ends up interviewing mad psychics in towns all over the north of England. Sidgwick and Nietzsche, I want to suggest, in a sense, bring the project of foundational normative theory in at least certain areas of academic life in the English-speaking world to a halt. After Sidgwick and after Nietzsche, academic ethics retreats into a discussion of some of those questions that I characterized in the first lecture as meta-ethical questions. And to a very large extent, the heart of academic ethics in the 20th century remains within this little, what has been called by someone, the small walled garden of English analytic ethics for the next half century until we see it's saved by some remarkable people in the 1950s and 1960s. The first school of moral philosophers sort of retreating from large-scale normative theory in the face of this crisis are philosophers we call intuitionists. I mentioned here just three of the great intuitionists. All of these philosophers were English, either at Oxford or Cambridge. G.E. Moore, about whom I'm going to say a good deal in just a moment, who taught his entire career at Cambridge University and his great work in moral philosophy, Principia Ethica, selections from which I've asked you to read for this course, is generally regarding as the founding document of 20th century ethics. This is where 20th century academic ethics begins in the first chapter of Principia Ethica. Pritchard, H.A. Pritchard, who was down the road at Oxford, had views similar to Moore's in certain respects, different in others. He wrote one of the most influential articles in 20th century ethics, Does Moral Philosophy Rest on a Mistake? And you'll not be surprised to hear that Pritchard argued that it does rest on a mistake. The whole history of moral philosophy, he said, rests on a mistake. And he saw for the first time exactly what it was and tries to correct it. All of this in 11 pages. I've also asked you to read that piece, although I'll have little to say about it today. Finally, another remarkable philosopher at Oxford, W.D. Ross, whose great work, which we don't have on the slide, is called The Right and The Good. And he was the third in this great triumvirate of intuitionist moral philosophers. Well, what did they believe and how did they get 20th century ethics underway? First, just, just a word or two about Moore himself. G.E. Moore was, like most philosophers in England from this period, the son of a country vicar who lost his faith early on and turned to philosophy largely in an attempt to find some substitute. He becomes one of the most important and influential philosophers in the 20th century. His critical powers were incredibly developed. He, along with Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein, the great Austrian philosopher who comes to, to Cambridge in the uh, early 20th century, dominate English-speaking philosophy in this tradition for the first half 
of the 20th century. Uh, Moore had famously had a passion for clarity, and that's, that's important. Not for Moore was the building of grand theories. He says in a remark, I think that tells a lot about him, once about his own career, that he would never have done philosophy if other people hadn't done philosophy and he could criticize them. It was what other philosophers said that got him interested. He's always sort of backing back from philosophy. He's not at all like Socrates, walking around Athens full of curious questions. His questions just have to do with the article or the views put forward by someone uh, down the hall from him in his Cambridge college. He also is an incredibly naive philosopher in terms of there's kind of innocence about him that contributes, I think, to his philosophical work. He tells a story in his autobiography that as a 16-year-old boy in a beach vacation, he ran across a, a sort of itinerant evangelist and was converted to a kind of evangelical Christianity, the central thesis of which, and we'll be familiar with this from contemporary movements, was that we should always live our lives by uh, asking the simple question on every occasion of action, what would Jesus do? This in 1890. Uh, Moore says in his autobiography that that seemed reasonable to him. He adopted that view and tried to live according to it for 18 months. And he said after 18 months, it occurred to him one day he had no idea what Jesus would do and therefore he abandoned that view forever. Uh, there's a kind of innocence both about the way he took that up and the way one might say he abandoned it so quickly and it took him so long to come up with these grounds. His innocence comes out in all sorts of ways. He was knighted in the 1930s and another story told of him is that when he went to Buckingham Palace to get his knighthood, his wife waited at the gate, he went in to see the king and as he came out his wife said excitedly, what, did, what was the king like? What did you talk about? And Moore's only comment was, you won't believe this dear the king's never heard of Wittgenstein. Moore didn't have much conversation. He was focused on an attempt to get clear on issues that were merged from the comments of other philosophers. But a third feature about Moore was he had enormous cultural significance. His impact on 20th century philosophy is incalculable. One of the most important recent anthologies on 20th century ethics locates arguments from the first chapter of Principia Ethica as the most important arguments in the 20th century. Although he seems to many of us quite a dull dog, he had enormously influential friends. He was associated with the Bloomsbury Group, which was the cultural heart, in many ways, of uh, the most advanced thinking part of British culture in the early 19th century. Friends with John Maynard Keynes, Virginia Woolf, Lytton Strachey, the great author of Eminent Victorians, the great the man who made scathing critiques of 19th century intellectuals. Moore influenced all of them. But enough about his personality. What were his ideas? Well, he had a passion for clarity and a kind of simplicity, and his views have a certain kind of simplicity to them, too. And I want to talk sort of generally about his central ideas and try to, although Principia Ethica is a long book, it's a tedious book, the ideas that matter and have mattered for 20th century ethics can, I think, be captured quite quickly. His first idea, and this is connected to his passion for clarity, was that definition is the key to ethical methodology. Kant and Kantians, the utilitarians, had looked to build grand theories. Moore's thought was, we need to get clear on the most fundamental notions in ethics, what they mean, and then we can figure out whether they're true and which ones are true. He thought that the most fundamental notion in ethics was the notion of the good and 
if all ethical claims rest ultimately on claims about what's good and before we can decide what is good, which is the fundamental, what kinds of things are good, is it only pleasure, is it only virtue, before we can decide that, we have to know what good means. And he begins by defending this view. We have to get clear on definition. The second idea is that having established this methodological point more argues that there is no definition for good. Good names, as he famously puts it, a simple and non-natural object. Now, not all senses of good are like this. If I say it's good for you to go get a bite to eat right now because you're hungry, that notion of good might be an instrumental notion. It's good for you to eat because it leads to good nutrition and so forth. But ultimately, more thought, in order for us to engage in practical thought, there have to be some things we recognize as good in themselves, intrinsic goods. And these things are good in a way that is simple and non-natural. The constant uh, example he uses to illustrate a simple and non-natural property is the property of, uh, or a simple property, is the property of yellow, a color term. Although yellow, of course, is not non-natural, it's simple. We can't explain to anyone what yellow means. We can't break it down into simpler parts. And this was Moore's notion of definition. To define a term was to break it down into simples. So to define a rectangle is to break it down into the notions of four-sided, 90-degree angles, and so forth. Goodness defies uh, definition. We can identify it when we see it but we can't define it. Now, he gives arguments for this, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the third sort of preliminary idea is that although the notion of good, intrinsic goodness, is simple in this sense, it can't be defined or broken down, other ethical notions are complex. For example, the notion of obligation, which would be expressed in, in claims like this, you ought to act in certain sorts of ways, is complex. And it has this kind of complexity. Moore said we can define obligation that when we say you ought to perform a certain act, what we mean is performing that act will produce more goodness than anything else. So he reduces the meaning of ought in this way to the meaning of good, which of course is a meaning without definition. Now, why did Moore think that goodness was simple and non-natural property? Well, first of all, the most important term that Moore gives to us in the 20th century is the, is the term the naturalistic fallacy, which simply is the fallacy of trying to define good. Moore begins by telling us that the most important question in ethics is how can we define good, but by, by answering that question we can determine what is good. He tells us that we can't define it, and the basic fallacy in ethics is the attempt to define it. Moore goes through the history of ethics and suggests that virtually everybody in the history of ethics committed the naturalistic fallacy. They tried to identify what's good with what's pleasurable, or they tried to identify what's good with what's required by reason, or they tried to identify good with what a God would want us to do, or what our society would want us to do. And Moore says this is the mistake on which all moral philosophy has been based. Now, I said Pritchard thinks moral philosophy has also been based on a mistake, but his is a slightly 
different one. So the naturalistic fallacy is the fallacy committed by people who don't have the insight that the fundamental notion in ethics, the notion of goodness, names a simple and non-natural property. The second central idea connected to this is Moore's version of the open question, uh, the open question argument. And this is the argument that he puts forward as the argument to show that the notion of goodness is simple and non-natural. And I'm going to move ahead here. I, uh, there are two other notions, the principle of organic unity and the method of isolation, which we'll talk about too. But I want to go through some slides where we'll have more specification on each of those. So the open question argument, what, what is this argument? This is the argument that say purports to show that good names a simple and non-natural property. Uh, so it's a little complicated, and let me read this off the screen. The principle of definition that Moore uses is this. A definition of the form, W means M, some word means a certain thing, bachelor means unmarried male, whatever, plug in your own example. A definition of the form W means M is a good definition just in case any question of the form, but is this MW, is not a genuine question. It is closed by considerations of meaning. Now, what's all this about? Moore's proposing this principle that goes like this. We know that we have a good definition when our definition, and let's take bachelor means unmarried male, the classic example used by 20th century philosophers. How do we know that's a good definition? Let's assume that it is, leaving aside complications about it. If someone says bachelor means unmarried male, we can turn that into a question. Here's a bachelor, but is this bachelor an unmarried male, or is this bachelor unmarried, or is this bachelor a male? Those questions, according to Moore, are closed questions. And he meant by a closed question that we don't need to go out and investigate bachelors. We don't need to check out all the bachelors to see if they're unmarried, and maybe we'll find one in San Diego who's a bachelor but is in fact married. We know we won't find one in San Diego because to be a bachelor requires that you be unmarried. Being unmarried and being male is definitionally connected to being a bachelor. Even God can't create, at least according to most of us, a married bachelor. Now, this notion of a closed question then is a question that's closed by the conditions of meaning and definition. This is our test for a good definition. Second move in the open question argument, suppose that I propose the following definition of good. Take any definition whatsoever. O is good means that O is what I desire to desire. This is a famous example that Moore actually uses. It may not leap to your mind as the most plausible example of a good definition of good, but this is the one Moore takes up. Consider that. Someone says, this is what good means, and this notion of intrinsic goodness, that something is good just in case it's what I desire to desire, just as we might say something is a bachelor just in case something is an unmarried male. Well, Moore says, but the question, now when we perform the question transformation here, but the question, this is something that I desire to desire, but is it good, just as we might say, but this is a bachelor, but is it unmarried, or is he unmarried, is not a closed question. It can be taken seriously as a question by those who understand these terms. No matter what definition, and this is the end of it, all attempts to define good meet the same fate. Moore is suggesting here that if you try any definition whatsoever, those that come from the history of moral philosophy, you will discover that 
when subjected to this test, we always have an open question. The question about what is good can never, according to Moore, be settled merely by the meanings of the term good. Now, Moore did not survey every possible definition. Famously, he only looks at a couple and he just says, but try the others and you'll find out that I'm always right. And to a very large extent, a lot of 20th century philosophy was people trying out different definitions. And one of the remarkable things is that to a very large extent, Moore's intuitions about this matter, what counts as an open or closed question, held up very well indeed. Now, to go back then to the naturalistic fallacy, this is the fallacy committed by any argument that states or presupposes that good can be defined. Okay? And the typical instances of this would be people who argue good means pleasurable, so good means approved by God, good means what is best for everyone concerned. Moore thinks then he has established that the fundamental notion in ethics is simple and non-natural. But then the question arises, how is it that we can determine what is good? Well, first, another principle which has been important in moral philosophy in the 20th century that Moore introduces in connection with this, that what he calls the principle of organic unity, which is the view that the total value of any whole any complicated thing is not merely the sum of the values of its parts. And we'll see how this is important in just a moment. Here's an example. Moore thought, for example, that something that's very valuable is you're going to a museum and contemplating a beautiful art object. And he asked the question, is the beauty of the art object what makes this so valuable? Or is it your appreciation of this art object? We have these two things. Moore thought, as a matter of fact, that the mere beauty of the art object wasn't so valuable, nor was your mere psychological response to it very valuable. They might just be, have two units of goodness each, but the overall value of this whole organic whole of your appreciating the art object might be 50. We, as it were, get additive value when we bring things together. And we can't simply decide how valuable some complex thing is by adding up all the values of the, uh, of the particular things in it. Finally, the method of isolation, which is Moore's method of determining how it is that we determine what's good. How do we find out what things really are good if we can't resort, as it were, to discovering natural properties that are associated with goodness? Moore says we have to adopt what he calls the method of isolation. In order to determine the intrinsic value of anything, it's best to consider that thing in isolation insofar as is possible from anything else. And simply consider it. If I want to know that the beauty of that painting in the museum is intrinsically good, I simply have to think about that beauty and I will see in isolation. And I will, as it were, see whether it's good or not. Moore uses this all the time. At one point, He's trying to determine the question, is mere beauty good in itself? And his way of using the method of isolation is, he says, imagine a world, a planet, full of the most beautiful things in the world moving away from us at roughly the speed of light, so it can never come into contact with any human beings. And imagine another planet filled with the most ugly things in the world moving away from us at almost the speed of light. So we just got this simple fact of beauty and ugliness with no interaction with human beings. And then he asks himself the question, 
Is the universe better to have the beautiful planet in it or the ugly planet, knowing that neither will ever be appreciated by human beings? And Moore says, obviously, we're better off uh, with the beautiful planet. Now, where that obviously comes from, I will leave you to ponder. What were, remember Moore's object here was to figure out what things are ultimately good. What were the two great classes of good things for Moore? There were two things. The pleasures of human intercourse, that is, being with our friends, social relations, and the encounter with beauty. Moore labors throughout this book to tell us at the end that the best thing in the world is for you to go to the art museum on Sunday afternoon with your friends. There's a kind of skeptical air to much of this, and I want to end by reading you a little passage from a memoir written by John Maynard Kane some years after, reflecting about how the method of isolation, and this actually was used in practice. This is John Maynard Keynes writing in the 1930s about his relationship with Moore and this view. How did we know, the friends of Moore's who tried to use the method of isolation, what states of mind were good? This was a matter of direct inspection, of direct unanalyzable intuition about which it was useless and impossible to argue. In that case, who was right when there was a difference of opinion? There were two possible explanations. It might be that the two parties were not really thinking about the same thing. They were not bringing their intuitions to bear on precisely the same object. And by virtue of the principle of organic unity, a very small difference in the object might make a very big difference in the result. Or it might be that some people had an acuter sense of judgment, just as some people can judge a vintage port and others cannot. On the whole, so far as I remember, this explanation prevailed. Ethical judgments are like wine tasting. In practice, victory was with those who could speak with the greatest appearance of clear, undoubting conviction and could best use the accents of infallibility. Moore at this time was a master of this method, greeting one's remarks with a gasp of incredulity. Do you really think that? An expression of face as if to hear such a thing said reduced him to a state of wonder verging on imbecility. This goes on, more wagging his head. In our next lectures, we're going to turn to why this stage of 20th century moral philosophy intuitionism, although powerfully defended, I want to suggest, fails and doesn't convince many people after a while. Already, I think we see that as an attempt to respond to this great cultural crisis, as I've called it, an intellectual crisis of the 19th century, how are we going to find the foundations for ethics? This looks like pretty much small potatoes. It's not quite as small as it might look, and we'll see why in our next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.